The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Sportbox, and here are your headlines. U.S. stocks rebound from a tough first half, shrugging off inflationary concerns to notch up their best monthly performance in more than two years. HSBC reports a 15% drop in first-half profits as Europe's biggest bank wrestles with rising credit losses. Demand weakness and COVID curbs hitting China's manufacturing sector as factory activity shrinks in July. And EU member states prepare to tighten their belts for a long, cold winter as a voluntary 15% cut in natural gas consumption comes into effect. So great to be back in the seat and great to have you with us. Welcome back Matthew. as well. I know you've been, been here a week already, right? I have been a week already yep. and I decided to come back, you know, yeah, so clearly lovely. it wasn't, Steve didn't scare me off that much. <laughs> Not that much. <laughs> lovely. Well, I hope he's watching from Croatia or wherever it is. I somehow doubt it. I'm guessing I that he's probably out well. looking at the beautiful crystal clear. Oh, somebody just fell oh, over in the studio. Oops, and there goes the camera. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, we're going to have a great week. Uh, and, um, We've got to focus on some of these European earnings. So let me just bring you some Heineken numbers here. So some very interesting figures from Heineken. As you look at the um, core figures here, there's some real strength. The first half net revenue, 24.3%. Organic growth per hectolitre up 15.6%. Diluted EPS uh, at Euro uh, 2 Euro and 20 cents. Uh, diluted EPS um, Euro 2.30 on uh, other measures. The revenue growth coming in at 37%. Expectations unchanged for full year 2022, but they are revising the guidance uh, for 2023. The uh, net profit growth in at 22.3%. The uh, group says we continue to face an uncertain outlook for consumers and businesses alike for 2023 we move from an operating margin uh, objective uh, towards delivering um, operating uh, profit uh, and organic growth. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. So let me see if I can find out what they're actually saying here. Medium-term aspirations uh, remain to deliver superior balance growth with operating leverage over time. We expect those significant inflationary pressures on our cost base and ongoing investment in our business to continue and impact the second half of the year. So it does appear that they are trying to manage expectations around growth for the second half of the year, primarily concerned around the input cost side of the business. The uh, group delivering first half turnover of 13.49 billion, as I say, the analysts were looking at something around 12.8. So on a headline turnover level, this is clearly a beat. Consolidated beer volume growth in at 7.6%. First half adjusted operating profit, 2.16 billion here. Our productivity program continues at pace. 
lifting aggregate gross savings contribution to Euro 1.7 billion by the end of 2022. This business, I think, like a lot of others mm. that have been in the consumer space, mm -hmm. have um, or has, it would appear, benefit, benefited from some of the removal of lockdowns. Mm -hmm. But obviously the input cost side, as they, they flag up here, is going to be a problem going forward. Mm -hmm. There was the issue of the, um, uh, the, the women's football, right. whether you saw the result. Did you see the result? Uh, for Sunday? England, England won. Congratulations. Fantastic, fantastic result. Really fantastic result. This company is a sponsor. Mm -hmm. They will have benefited as well, I guess, from the uptick in beer drinking mm -hmm. associated with sporting events. So that's good news for them as well. But it's the, the clarity around the outlook, mm. I think, is always interesting at the moment. As we look at these companies who are reporting, particularly in Europe, does seem to be challenging. You're absolutely right and I'm picking up on this statement here where they say we continue to face an uncertain outlook for consumers mm. and businesses alike and, and I said last week I wish I had a, a pound for every single time that a company has used the words uncertain outlook but it sums it up perfectly right mm. and we were actually speaking to Diageo last week when they came out with their results and they they noted sort of a secular shift that we're seeing away from beer and wine drinking towards spirits and I would also sort of throw in um, an added little you know dovetail into that an added little mm. theme and that is what I'm seeing certainly in Australia is that the young folk are very health conscious so not only are they going towards things like like alcohol free beer but also like um, hard seltzer, so basically soda water mm. with a shot of vodka in it and spirits of that kind that are much more sort of, you know, in, in the health and wellness spheres. They want to keep on drinking alcohol, they want a buzz, but yep. they don't want to put on the pounds that, and they that don't is want health to kill and, their liver. That's health and wellness, is it? Um, soda water <laughs> with a shot of vodka. That's, that's it's my health and that's wellness. That's health and wellness in Australia. Is that, is that where we're at? I think, moment, I think, you know what, I think you've summed up <laughs> Australia in, uh, in one, one single sentence. But yeah. actually Australia itself, I just noticed, noticed this morning a headline mm. saying that we're facing our biggest beer tax hike wow. in decades. They've actually had uh, something like 20 tax hikes wow. on beer in the past decade alone. Um, and naturally, you know, the, 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 the pubs and clubs are all up in arms because yeah. once again it's another nail in the coffin of beer drinking. And you have some rigorous intoxication laws in Australia. We do. I always find that yep. remarkable that, that it's tougher than the UK. I mm -hmm. think it's probably even tougher than the United States. But the pressure mm. on publicans mm -hmm. and clubs and bars mm -hmm. to single out individuals that they feel may have had too much Correct. is, is very, very tough. They, they are able to stop serving you and yeah. remove you from the premises if they feel that, wow. you know, perhaps Sir has enjoyed a little too much. Jeff Cutmore. Well, thank you like very that. much. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there. We'll go back to your Australians drinking their soda water and their and their vodka. But um, and we've come a long way from the Heineken numbers. So, that, so just to refocus, the CEO uh, Dolph Van den Brink will be with us on the program a little later on. So let's just flag that up for you, and we will talk to him about the outlook uh, in these numbers. And we'll also try and get a read on just how the football over the last few weeks may have contributed to sales.
Chinese manufacturing output contracted in July, according to the country's National Bureau of Statistics, as COVID lockdowns weighed on demand. However, there was a separate private survey that showed that factory activity did slow, but it avoided a contraction. In other words, it just stayed above that 50 line, which is the line between boom and bust. But do take a look at what oil prices are up to in the wake of that. Obviously, uh, you know, any kind of slowdown with regards to manufacturing activity in China is going to weigh on the oil market. Uh, Brent crude is down by about 1%, sitting at 102.95. WTI is off by 1.3%. I've also got the scores over the past week. We saw, uh, nonetheless, that um, week for, for last week, WTI gained over 4%. Uh, Brent uh, gained... Uh, 6.6% over the course of last week, but month to date, in other words, over the course of July, we did see uh, quite a big drop in oil prices, which maybe also partly uh, goes some way to explaining why equity markets had some respite in July as well. But we'll talk more about that later on. Back to China. Let's uh, take a look in more detail at uh, those manufacturing numbers and bring in my good friend and colleague from, from, uh, from Major Sam Vardis. Hello, Sam. Great to see you there. Fill us in. Good morning to you, Mandy. Lovely to see you over there. Uh, of course, I was just sitting here a month ago talking about how that recovery certainly was underway, but that seemed to have been short-lived. We're now seeing that recovery momentum already losing some steam, and I suppose that's what Premier Li Keqiang was getting at when he said the foundations here are not solid because we're seeing the recovery, certainly in the manufacturing sector, really acting quite sluggish. So we've seen both the private and the official numbers coming in below those expectations. It's interesting because the survey that looks at the smaller and private firms actually managed to hold up slightly better, that reading 50.4. So that was the good news. But when you take a look under the hood, you saw things like output and also those new orders when it came to domestic and external orders, both actually softening in July. And there were also a couple of worrying trends. You had the employment gauge uh, coming down once again, the fourth month in a row, actually falling at the fastest pace in 27 months, the most since April 2020, the height of the pandemic. And that was put down to cost-cutting measures, but also not replacing those people who have voluntarily left their jobs. So there seems to be some concerns about hiring at the moment while lowering some of those costs in the face of that sluggish demand. The other worrying trend, you could say, is perhaps those delivery times actually lengthened once again. And a lot of these companies put this down uh, to stock and staff shortages, but also those COVID disruptions. Now, there was one bright spot in the private survey, and that was that uh, input costs only came up slightly after those persistent high prices have been weighing on those profit margins. So what this data tells us today, as I say, is the smaller and private firms holding up slightly better than the bigger and state-owned firms because we actually saw the official figure contracting after only rebounding uh, from those lockdowns back in June. Uh, that was largely down to the falling production orders as well, employment, uh, that gauge also dropping. Uh, but that was uh, largely contributed to as well by continued contraction in the energy intensive areas. And that was because of weak demand and those production cuts. But I would say uh, that the good news in all this data is that the non-manufacturing side of things actually managed to stay elevated. And that may offset some of these concerns about what we are seeing in the manufacturing sector. We'll be getting a read on how the private and smaller firms are holding up in the services sector when we get that Taishin manufa or services sector PMI 
out on Wednesday. Mandy and uh, Jeff, back to you. Yeah, Steve is, is gone. It's me all week this week, Sam. Thank you so much for that. Uh, let's move on. Um, so has the Fed pivoted here? What are we expecting on interest rates? Will the inflation numbers still look punchy? The U.S. Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index rose to its biggest 12-month gain in more than 40 years in June. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge hit 6.8% year over year, with food and energy prices leading the way. But that didn't seem to dent sentiment for July, did it, Mandy? No, it certainly didn't. And I've actually got some fantastic charts here that our wonderful production team have prepared for us because one chart can tell a, a really illustrative story. Let's bring up the S&P month to date. And when we say month to date, we mean over the course of July. It was a really good month. In fact, the best month we've had since November 2020. Jeff. So S&P was up just over 9% over the course of July here and, and did finish on a strong note over the course of last week. If you want to find out what exactly it's done uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, well actually it's off the pandemic low by 88%. In other words, since we hit that low, I think it was March 2020, right, right at the height of the crisis when there was a lot of panic and a lot of uncertainty, there you go, about what exactly the uh, COVID pandemic would do to corporate profits, would do to markets, would do to the global economy since then up by 88 percent let's flip over the board and show you the uh, the july performance for the dow uh, over the course of july the dow was up by just over six percent 6.7 to be exact and uh, that is also its best performance since november of 2020 it still is however though jeff 11 percent off its record high so still in what we call of course correction territory let's uh, take a look at the nasdaq here so some very different uh, numbers when it comes to the nasdaq uh, over the course of July, it did gain by over 12%. Of course, we had a number of big tech behemoths last week reporting, and uh, in many cases, were not as bad as feared. You know, num numbers from, for example, um, Amazon and Apple and Alphabet, you know, lots and lots of uh, big tech names reported last week, and not as bad as feared was the general theme there. So the NASDAQ itself, uh, since uh, the pandemic low, up 86%, but still off 23% from its record high. So that, of course, is still bear market territory from that record high. Um, so, uh, you know, it's actually been a pretty good week over the course of last week, Jeff, and I would put a lot of that down to the fact that we're seeing a dialing back of central bank expectations yeah. because increasingly we're worried about the growth outlook as opposed to just the inflationary outlook. Um, but it does seem a lot of uh, pundits out there saying, whoa, cool your jets, Tiger, because um, there's still a lot of inflation inflation fighting that central banks need to do. I think the, the surprise, I mean, it wasn't just the, the US markets that did well. The European markets also yes. had a pretty good July as well. Yes. And that was against the rub of expectations, wasn't it? I mm. think, as you're pointing out here. And maybe the energy price story helped a little bit, mm. but the inflation headline numbers were still very aggressive. Yes. And yet the growth numbers that we mm. saw from the European economies were actually quite respectable mm, last were. week. And again, sort of bucked the trend of expectations, which I guess, you know, it's all a bit rear view looking data, mm. but it does give you at least uh, some handles to hang the better market performance on at this stage. So it does seem that the economists and the analysts are still really struggling to work out what a world post two years mm. of pandemic related lockdown actually looks like because some of the um, data that we continue to see here on spending mm. 
is still relatively robust. And mm. I, I know that as we look at the credit card data in the States, it does look as though consumers are increasingly falling back on credit cards to continue to bridge Record the gap. Record levels of credit card debt. Between now prices and where earnings mm. are. But even in Europe, it seems to me, there's generally reasonable levels of cash among the consumer. It's just the willingness to go out and continue to spend it at this point, even as we see prices continuing mm. to rise. I'm going to pick up on one of the points that you made there, mm. Jeff, and that is with regards to the um, actually pretty reasonable growth numbers that we saw out of Europe mm. last mm. week. I wonder mm. if we're kind of like in that, that calm eye of the storm, where we had the first part of the storm during COVID, we're in that sort of little calm patch now, and we've got the next part of the storm to come. And I say that because obviously... We've been benefiting here in Europe from the reopening, from everybody suddenly having massive amounts of pent-up demand to get out there into the shops, get out there into the restaurants, get out there and travel. You know, the airport chaos is well documented at the moment because everybody is suddenly just being unleashed across Europe. So I'm wondering how much of that is giving a temporary boost to the economic numbers that may not last. I'm just just putting it out there. Let's uh, well, let's ask Dan Morris. Um, yeah. Hopefully, he can help us out. Um, Chief Market Strategist, BNP Paribas Asset Management. Dan, good to have you back with us on the program here. Just sum up for us what you think the performance in markets in July um, meant uh, for what we're going to see through August, and why do you think we did see some better numbers? Well, it'd be nice, excuse me, if we get the get the same pattern in August as we get in in July. If we look for an explanation of why we've had this rally, and I think what's interesting with this rally is remember, you know, maybe three or so weeks ago, we had a period where you had essentially just the opposite. We had equities falling uh, and bond yields rallying, got a very typical recessionary pattern. You know, weak growth, so lower rates, but also lower equities. And so at the time, if you wanted, you could have it, uh, interpreted that as the growth slowdown uh, that the data we're getting now really is confirmed. So if anything, you would have expected that to continue, but instead we get a decent rally. And I think if you look for a story that hopefully is somewhat um, uh, reasonable for that scenario, it is the focus of the market on the lower rates, the banks not having to hike as much uh, is really the reason that we've seen the support. I mean, the fall in the expectations for the level of Fed funds and the ECB's deposit rate in a year is over 100 basis points. So that's a pretty big difference. Economic conditions, it, it seems, are not going to get a whole lot better from here on in. Um, the earnings have been okay, but again, it feels like that's another shoe to drop at this stage. So then how do you line up your bets for August and the second half of the year? Well, in terms of our allocations, we're uh, still underweight duration and neutral on equities. But I want to pick up one thing uh, on one thing that you just said about uh, the economic outlook not likely to get any better. But I think we need to remember that that's the point. I mean, that's really what the central banks are trying to achieve here, because the fundamental problem is still inflation. It's not growth that they're focused on. They're, if anything, happy may not be the word, but you know they appreciate we need to have a further slowdown in growth uh, if we're going to see inflation come down anywhere close to the targets that the banks have. So from that point of view, uh, it does suggest that they're going to need to keep tightening. So hence our underweight uh, in duration when we look at our asset allocation. To Jeff's earlier point, do we need to see the US dollar and oil both continue to pull back for the equity markets to be able to keep on rallying, Dan? 
I, I don't know if that's a, a necessary or sufficient condition, though I think it makes sense to anticipate that uh, at some point, I mean, historically in tidying cycles, or if we look uh, towards increasing risk of a recession, you would expect both of those things to happen. Um, so, you know, that would be potentially supportive. But if that is happening because you're moving the U.S. towards a recession, uh, it's harder to see that, at least for equities, is necessarily a positive mm. environment. I see that you're overweight China and Japan, and certainly both of those economies really stand out for the very fact that not only do they have comparatively low inflation, say compared to other parts of the world like the U.S. and the Eurozone, but also they've got central banks who are still prepared to be accommodative. Well, absolutely. And, you know, equities, like I said, we're, we're neutral. So it's not like we think they're a great op opportunity. We you know, anticipate some appreciation. Uh, but if you're going to look at, well, where do you want to allocate in equities? I think going somewhere where the central banks aren't going to be hiking rates 100, 200 basis points more uh, does seem to be something that's probably more interesting. And I think the other really key thing uh, to repeat, as you mentioned on the inflation front, you know, one of the big differences, particularly uh, looking at China a bit less perhaps with Japan, is that China really can afford to, to support the economy either through fiscal or monetary stimulus more than Europe or the U.S. can simply because they're not having to worry about getting inflation down from 9%, 10%. You, know, you think about what the ECB is trying to do now uh, with its program to, on one hand, support Italy, but on the other hand, try to bring down inflation. That's a quite difficult balance to find. And at least in that respect, China doesn't have that problem. Yeah, it does have a debt problem, though, Dan, doesn't it? Particularly in the property market. And while that has been, to a certain extent, a sideshow uh, compared to the the greater story about growth and whether central bank will uh, stimulate. Um, do we need to be concerned that that may increasingly become a more important story as we see the government grapple with how to restructure the sector? Yeah, no, certainly uh, need to, to pay attention to that risk as well. And uh, you're very good to make the point that that offsets whatever benefit the government has by not having to deal with the inflation problem. You know, I think that one thing we can say is, in, in a sense, worries about the debt market in China aren't particularly new. Uh, you know, it's one of these things like a JGB bond crisis in, in Japan. People have been predicting this for at least a decade. Um, you know, is it really manifesting itself now? Certainly more than it has in the past. I think you come back to, though, just the resources that the government has to address it. So not to minimize the problems that they face, certainly significant. Uh, but, you know, it's still a relatively closed economy. The government essentially controls the financial sector, so they can do a lot. They have a lot of levers to deal with the problem, but it certainly is a meaningful problem. And we'll continue talking about what's happening in China over the course of the show. And, of course, we're also going to be picking up on HSBC in a second as well. Daniel Morris, thank you so much for joining thank us you. and kicking off our uh, week here on Squawk Box. Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, BNP Paribas Asset Management. So, as I just mentioned, HSBC, its profits plunge in the first half. So, we're going to get out live to Hong Kong where the stock is moving again after the lunch break. Hong Kong itself has been really in the doldrums. We'll talk more about this in a second. Uh, we also need to find out a little bit more about the drinking habits of Australians. And you can do that and you can find out a bit more about China's key manufacturing sector by listening in to the Squawk Box podcast. It's golden this morning.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. We're back, everybody. Uh, about 30 minutes or so ago, HSBC posted a 15% drop in first half profit to $9.2 billion as rising net interest income failed to offset expected credit losses. Um, there were a number of positive lines in here, though, about uh, reverting to quarterly dividend payments and about upgrading a key performance target. So let's get to Emily in Hong Kong with more on this story. And Emily, there was a lot in here, but broadly, I think the market has taken these numbers as a positive. Yeah, that's right, Jeff. And that's why we're seeing is positive response in the shares uh, as we have returned from the lunch break and the HSBC shares rallying about three and a half percent ahead of the earnings release. It was down about one percent this morning. This comes as HSBC reported profit across all regions in the first half, reporting pre-tax profit of nine point two billion dollars. That's down 15 percent on year for the second quarter. Pre-tax profit coming in at five billion dollars, which was better than expected revenue in the quarter up. 2% to $12.8 billion. Net interest margins of 1.35% on the quarter. Return on average tangible equity of 9.8%. Common equity tier one ratio of 13.6%. The bank approved an interim dividend of $0.09 cents per share. And given the current returns trajectory, the bank says it expects a dividend payout ratio of around 50% for 2023 and 2024. HSBC will resume paying quarterly dividends in 2023 with the aim to restore the dividend to pre-COVID levels as soon as possible. On share buybacks, they say they're unlikely in 2022 after announcing a $1 billion buyback at the full year results. HSBC has so far exited or is exiting non-strategic businesses in the West and reallocating that capital towards areas of growth in Asia and the Middle East. It is on track, they say, to complete the sale of its French retail business next year, and it is now on a more international business with strong domestic franchises in the UK and Hong Kong. Now, I should mention here that it's very important because we have Mark Tucker, the company's chairman and CE, Group CE Noel Quinn in Hong Kong to meet investors tomorrow. And this will be the first face-to-face meeting in three years since COVID. Uh, the bank has defended itself in the face of the biggest shareholder, Ping On, calling for an exploration of strategic options like spinning off its Asian business to unlock greater shareholder value. And this move would make it less affected by political factors in the UK and its regulations. Now, since April, this proposal has gained the backing of some Hong Kong investors that have been disgruntled after dividends were canceled in 2020. So this meeting is happening tomorrow with the investors face to face, 4.30 Hong Kong time. And of course, it's on the update on the group strategy, which is a deviation, a shift away from what is usually on results and other Uh, outstanding matters. Back to you guys. Yeah, and of course, Emily, that uh, cancelling of the dividend back in early 2020, HSB certainly wasn't alone. It was uh, other major UK banks that did the same on the uh, the urgings of the BOE. So, Emily, to what degree do you think today's report will go towards satisfying those Hong Kong shareholders tomorrow? 
Well, it certainly is uh, good news, and we're seeing the reaction in the share price, Mandy. Uh, as we've been talking about, uh, the HSBC shares traded in Hong Kong are up, and it's up about 3.3%. So we, we are advancing on the, the response to the report card, which came in all profitable across all regions. And as the bank continues to shift away from its non-core businesses out of markets uh, back into Asia, that should be something uh, that might give Give the uh, Hong Kong investors a little bit more oomph in their in their uh, their not really a battle, but in their aim to try and maybe get this uh, potential spin-off of their Asian business. Ping On certainly wants to see that, uh, given that they missed out on those 2020 dividends with Ping On holding about a 9.5% stake in HSBC. Uh, so we'll be watching for that meeting again, 4.30 p.m. Hong Kong time. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.